Well, excellent. Good afternoon. I just want to add my welcome to that of Anne's. Uh, as Anne has just said, my name's Owen, and I have the privilege of being part of the leadership team here at Foundation Church. And so whether you're with us week in, week out, it's great to see you guys, or whether you're here visiting for the first time today, it's excellent to have you with us. We are three weeks into a series together looking at the letter to the church at Philippi, or the New Testament letter of Philippians, written in around AD 60 by the Apostle Paul, who was a first century Christian leader, to the Christian church in Philippi that he had helped get started 10 years prior to writing this letter to them. And he, as we talked about a few weeks ago, Paul wrote this letter back to the church at Philippi to encourage them to strengthen them in their faith, and to encourage them to keep going. Unlike most of Paul's letters, the letter to the church at Philippi doesn't really contain uh, any kind of strong correction. Most of his letters address particular issues in the church, uh, whether that's false teaching that's happening within the church, or kind of issues of real immorality in the church that need addressing uh, and, and dealing with. Most of Paul's letters contain those kind of correctives, but the, the letter to the Philippian church is not like that. It is generally an encouraging letter. It's written to a church that's in a place of health, uh, a church that's doing well 10 years after it got started, uh, but Paul writes to them from prison for their strengthening and their encouragement. He'd love to be with them in person. We find at the start of chapter one this kind of real warm greeting where Paul conveys just his, his love for them, his heart for them, his joy in God that they're going on in the faith that they've not walked away, they've not been led astray, and his, his longing really to be with them, but unable to be with them, he writes for their encouragement. And we're going to pick up today at chapter 1, verse 27, and we're going to go all the way through to chapter 2, uh, verse 18. So if you've got a Bible, I would encourage you to open it and read along there. The words will be up on the screen, but I'd always encourage you, if you have a Bible, open it for yourself. Don't just kind of take my word for it that this that I've put on the screen is what it actually says in God's Word. Check it out for yourself, okay? So we're going to read from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through to 218. The way we're going to do this uh, is we'll read a kind of chunk at a time and then pause unpack that bit, apply it some, and then read on. But what we need to know just up front is to remind ourselves of the context. So really, in in chapter 1, Paul has underlined for them that he's rejoicing when he prays for them that they're continuing in the faith. And Paul has just written to them that actually from this place of prison, his future is uncertain. He, He might be released unable to continue in ministry, uh, or he may actually be executed where he is. And he, he writes to them, like, I, I'm not sure how this is going to work out effectively. He says, but, but I know that whatever, God is good. And he says, to live is Christ. If I continue to live, either in prison or free from prison, I continue to live for Christ. To live is Christ. It's my life. Everything I do is all about him. And to die is gain because it means being with him forever. And so against that backdrop, Paul 
moves on from talking about his situation in prison and his rejoicing uh, in that place because of what Christ has done. And he begins now to focus on the Philippian Christians and their situation and where they are. He moves on from a, a kind of storytelling mode, narrative about what has, is going on for him. And actually, the verses we're going to look at today contain, instead of narrative, actually a lot of imperatives or instructions, commands, things that they should do. And these things that we're going to read are not bound to their context. The things that Paul writes here to the church at Philippi apply just as much to us today as they did to them then. And so these anticipated responses that he writes to them about, these commands, these imperatives that he gives to them, they're for us as well today. Uh, and so we're going to jump in and read and see what Paul had to say, what God says through his word for us, and then we'll unpack it. So let's go from chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, Only let your, man, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should suffer, that, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Remember, Paul might be executed. He might be released. But he's writing to a group of Christians who are in the same position he was when he was first imprisoned. If you remember the first time we looked at this book of Philippians together, we thumbed back to Acts chapter 16 to see how the, the Philippian church got its start. And it, it got its start in part when Paul was imprisoned at Philippi for proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And now Paul is in chains once more for proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And, and so the Philippian church know this is a real possibility. We could also be arrested, just like Paul has been. They know that that could be the case. And, and into this context, where they are facing opposition, where they face the threat of imprisonment, Paul says to them, let your manner of life or the way you live be worthy of the gospel. Paul here is talking, he makes it explicit a bit later in chapter 3, he's talking about their life as citizens of heaven. That their conduct should be informed more by their heavenly citizenship than their Roman citizenship, their earthly one. See, the Philippian Christians were Roman citizens. And that was a big deal for them. It was a big deal to be a citizen of Rome. It came with certain privileges and rights. It also came with cultural expectations. Now, each one of us today benefits from being a citizen. 
we have benefits and privileges afforded to us on the basis of our citizenship, either Britain or wherever else we may be citizens of. I know there are some people in this room who have dual nationality, dual citizenship, and they enjoy the privileges on both fronts. Well, all of us have a dual citizenship today. You have a, an earthly citizenship, which comes with some benefits and privileges, and also some expectations, legal expectations, cultural expectations, societal pressures, and you also, if you're a Christian, are a citizen of heaven. You have dual citizenship, and your citizenship of heaven is way, way, way more important, comes with way more privileges and way more benefits than any earthly citizenship ever could. But our earthly citizenship and our heavenly citizenship sometimes clash. Because the expectations placed on us, the social norms and pressures placed on us through our earthly citizenship, at times, increasingly so, I think, in this day and age, come at odds with our heavenly citizenship, are squarely at odds with our faith and the teaching of Scripture. And sooner or later, most of us, I would say probably all of us, in some way or another in our lives, if not through the actual legal framework that's associated with our citizenship, but certainly with the societal pressures that come along with living in 21st century Britain, we'll have to ask, which citizenship do we value more? Which will weigh most heavily in our decision-making process? Our earthly citizenship and our place in society, or our heavenly citizenship through Christ Jesus. And, and that's really what Paul's beginning to lean into here with the Philippian church. is this idea that we should live as Christians on earth, shaped by, humbled by, and informed by our citizenship of heaven. That British values and societal norms don't define you if you're a Christian, primarily. I'm not saying ignore them. <laughs> like, I'm not saying just like pretend none of that exists. There's some good stuff actually in there. If you look at the, the kind of British core values that are upheld, I, I would say broadly they're, they're good values. But as a Christian, they don't define you. At any rate, they shouldn't. Heaven's values are the ones that count for us. And if heaven's values are the ones that count, then that means Paul can write to the church at Philippi and in turn to us, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus. It should have an impact. It should be demonstrative in the way you live. 
The, the thrust of the word worthy here, to live in a manner worthy of, it means like matching its weight and value. It's like a picture of scales. So if the gospel of Christ Jesus is on one side, Paul says your, your life and your response and your actions and your decision-making process should be worthy of or in proportion to the gospel of Christ Jesus. So the, the impact that being saved <laughs> through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ through his blood shed on your behalf at the cross, the, the impact of the freedom from sin that he's won for you, the, the impact of all that he's done for you, of bringing you into right relationship with God, like has this weight <laughs> in your life. And you're supposed to live a life that is in response to that, <laughs> that's worthy of it. Now, that doesn't mean earning our salvation, but it means that if you've become a Christian, it should be evident in your life as you want to live in response to the impact of the finished work of Jesus. See, our lives evidence the reality of what we live, what we believe, like evidence given in a court. Our behavior proves our beliefs, so we can, we can profess with our mouths what we like, but actually how we behave tells the truth about what we really believe. If you believe that Christ is Lord and the only way by which people might be saved, then that will make a difference to the way you live and the way you speak to people and what you hope to share with them. Paul says to the Philippians and in turn to us, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, live in response to that good news. Let it inform your actions. Live like him. <laughs> Live for him. Your parenting, schooling, working, serving should all be for Christ. As citizens of heaven, we're supposed to do all that we can to make sure our life backs up the message of Jesus rather than undermines it. It's interesting to note, Paul wrote this encouragement to live worthy of the gospel to a group of Christians who may face imprisonment or worse for their Christian faith, for, for doing exactly that, for living in response to the good news of Jesus. So he doesn't write to them, keep your heads down. Like, hold back. Just, just be careful what you say. Like, don't, make sure you don't kind of put anyone out. He doesn't say that. <laughs> he says, live a life worthy of the good news of Jesus. Be a living, breathing evidence of the grace of God at work, saving you and changing you. And if you suffer like Paul and the Philippians as a result, what does Paul say? He, he says in here about it. He says, you're not to be frightened of anything, from verse 29, not to be frightened in anything by your opponents. And actually, as you're not frightened, 
It's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God, your salvation from God, for it has been granted you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul says to them, guys, don't be afraid if persecution comes. Trust God in it, knowing that actually he, he's with you in it. He's, he's appointed that, that you suffer in that way if that comes. Don't go seeking it out. Like I've met some Christians who are almost determined to suffer for the gospel to the point that they actually go around just being obnoxious. And then they're like, yeah, I'm being persecuted. It's like, no, no, you're just being an idiot. Like people are responding badly to you because you're being obnoxious. That's not what Paul's talking about. But Paul's saying as you seek to live in obedience to Christ Jesus, as you seek to to live primarily as a citizen of heaven, to proclaim that Jesus is Lord in everything you do, to, to say along with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If, if that causes people to push back against you, then Paul says, that's okay. <laughs> like God's appointed for you to suffer in that way. And you can be strengthened in it. You can have hope in it. Remember Paul wrote in the first chapter, he said, my, my chains, this imprisonment, this whole thing has served to advance the gospel. Like Paul's perspective on his suffering was that God had used it for his glory and for the advancement of the gospel. Either our perspective might be the same. Paul says that standing firm and standing together in the gospel and not being afraid of persecution for the sake of the gospel it is a sign to unbelievers as well. It's literally a demonstration or proof or evidence that the gospel is true, <laughs> that you're prepared to, to suffer for it. And I, I guess I want to say as well that if you never face any opposition because of your walk with Christ, then, then actually the perspective of the Bible and the experience of Christians throughout history is that there's quite possibly something amiss. That maybe you're reading Philippians and thinking that Paul said, keep your head down and try and live a quiet life rather than live a life worthy of the gospel. We find there's loads of passages I could quote, but, but 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 says this, and indeed all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Because living as a citizen of heaven will put you at times at odds with the values of this world. 1 Peter 4.12, we read this. Peter writing to the church, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Like, it, it's not strange. It's normal that Christians experience persecution for their faith. The last hundred years or so of Western history is, is pretty weird <laughs> on a global scale and on a, like, just go through history scale in terms of how normal and accepted Christianity has been and how 
how the church has found itself at the centre of society instead of pushed to the margins and persecuted for the gospel. In John 15, Jesus said to his followers, from John 15, 18, if the world hates you, none of us are very comfortable with the thought of being hated, are we? quite like being liked by people. But Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. Or if you want to take Pauline kind of language, if you were primarily a citizen of this world, you'd be very welcome here. But you're primarily a citizen of heaven. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own, Jesus said. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If you're a Christian, then you have a completely different set of values and priorities to the world. You do. (laughs) And at times, that will put you at odds with culture. At times, it will put you at odds with culture in a way that will lead to persecution. Now, that might just mean, like, some of your friends think you're weird because you say you trust in Jesus. But it might mean other things. Increasingly, we're starting to see court cases and people losing jobs for sharing their faith in the workplace or for saying that actually they, they want to uphold a biblical view of marriage or sexuality or gender. At times, your citizenship of heaven and upholding those values will put you squarely at odds with your citizenship of earth. We need to settle that in our hearts. We need to be okay with that. (laughs) Jesus said that should be expected. And I'm not saying it to try and shock you. And and I'm also not saying it to condemn you, where you think, oh no, maybe I've followed the values of the world too much. Like, I'm not saying it to condemn you. I'm saying it because I love you if you're part of this church community. I, I love you and I want you to understand that this is important. And at times we're going to have a choice to make and I, I want you to make a good choice. We can keep our heads down and go along with the world's way. Compromise our faith. Or we can choose to say, no, I I want to live. (laughs) Primarily as a citizen of heaven. I I want to live according to what I find in God's word. For his glory. For the good of those around me. I want to trust him. Even if that means opposition or persecution. I want to follow him. And with all that in mind, Paul continues on. At the start of chapter 2, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul starts to put flesh on the bones of some of what this looks like, again, to live as citizens of heaven. He says, like, if there's any encouragement in Christ, he's like, if you've encouraged Jesus, if you've received the Spirit of Christ, then you'll grow like Jesus more and more, effectively, what is what he's teaching here. He says, you're united with him, united with the one who conquered death, the one who's opened up a new and living way for you to have relationship with him. He took on himself the cross for you, the penalty of your sin. If you've put your hope in him, you've turned away from going your own way and trying to please yourself, turned towards him, found forgiveness in him, then he's given you new life. He's given you the right to be called child of God. And if you have any encouragement from that good news whatsoever, Paul says if you have any encouragement, any encouragement that you won't be judged on your own merit, but on Christ's finished work, any encouragement from the fact that Christ's perfection is given to you as though it were your own, any encouragement from that, then let it affect the way you live and the way you treat other people. Do you have any encouragement from what Christ has done for you? And let it impact the way you live. Paul says from verse 3, he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Like, this is tough. Like, because by default, we, we look to our own interests. But if you're a Christian, the expected and anticipated overflow is, is a deep and sincere care for others. And I'm, I'm encouraged by what I see of that amongst you within this church. It was Eileen shared at the start. Yeah? People giving of themselves, of their time and their energy to, to care for her. And Mike, well, she recovered from her shoulder injury. People giving of themselves, preferring, like inconveniencing themselves for her good. That means putting her first. See, putting yourself first would mean staying at home and putting your feet up but inconveniencing yourself for her good. You're, you're living out what Paul was calling the Philippian church to. But I want to encourage you to it all the more, to imitate Christ in this. We're supposed to be like Jesus. And Paul knows, I think, that the Philippian church and we would read that and go, we've got a long way to go. <laughs> Like, how do we do it? Oh, man. And he points them back and points us back then to our Savior, to Jesus. 
It's to remind us of the love that we've received because actually when we remember what Christ has done for us, it affects change in our hearts. It causes us to want to respond in obedience. It causes us to want to respond, to grow in his likeness. It draws out our citizenship of heaven from us. And so Paul writes to them, have this mind among yourselves, we're from verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul reminds them and reminds us of what Christ has done for us. Consider Jesus who had everything, who deserved all glory and honor. He had all authority on power, who made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant who obediently went to the cross and died in your place so that you could receive new life in him. Remember Christ. Rejoice in what he did. Consider what he did again and let it do you good. Jesus did it for you to bring you into relationship with him. But but we don't respond to that news by saying, yes, yes, he did it for me. Great. I deserve it. He did it for me because I'm so brilliant. He did it for me because I'm so amazing. That's, that, like, that's a wrong response. If that's our response, we miss the point. No, we read it and we go, wow, really? For me? The king of heaven took on human flesh, bore my sin at the cross for me. Amazing. It should humble us. It should cause us to say, Lord, I'm so grateful. God, I want to give everything I have in response to you. The overflow of a heart that knows the forgiveness of God is a desire to please God. When we realize and remember what he's done for us, it should compel us to say, oh Lord, I, I, I want to give it all that I have for you. Everything I have, every breath, every word, every action, Lord, I want it to be to your glory. We, we read a similar 
sentiment elsewhere in Romans chapter 12. There's lots of parallels to some of these verses we're reading today. But Paul writes at the start of chapter 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Like in view of God's mercy, in, in view of what Jesus has done for you, the only response that makes any sense is to offer all that you are and all that you have back to him in worship. Every word, every moment, every ounce of resource. Say, Lord, I, I, I want to use this in a way that pleases you. In response to your mercy. That, that verse in Romans is like a turning point. Paul spends the first chunk of the book of Romans talking about the gospel and building up to that point. And then it says, therefore, in view of his mercy, in view of all that Christ has done for you, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And this point in Philippians is somewhat similar. He reminds us what Christ has done and then says... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's a response to what Jesus has done. It's interesting, isn't it? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We have something to do in response. But then in verse 13, Paul says, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's this tension that's set up in these verses. That there's almost an apparent contradiction. Work out your salvation. It's God who works in you. You go, who's working here? Like, is he working? Are we working? What's happening? Paul gives several imperatives in these verses that we've read. They're, they're things we're supposed to do. And, and then... <laughs> In verse 13 says, God works in you. Well, remember earlier in chapter 1, we read together, Paul said, God who started a good work in you will see it to completion. So he's working in you. And, and here, God works in you. God works in you to open your eyes to see his goodness, to respond to his grace. He changes your heart into one that wants to please him and honor him. And then you live accordingly by the power of his spirit. You would not and could not live for God apart from his work in your life. Like you won't do it. If you just decided... I, I'm, I'm going to live for God. You, you would not accomplish it. Apart from Christ, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. The Bible teaches us that clearly. And dead people don't choose to come back to life. They, they need an external force to act on them, to, to cause them to come to life, to animate them. You didn't choose to live, to be alive. God in his mercy reached down and chose you and breathed life into you. He replaced your heart of stone, your dead heart of stone, with a heart of flesh that would beat for him, 
and desire to please him and live in response to his goodness and mercy. And he asks you in response to live for him. And not on your own. He asks you to do it dependent on him, reliant on his spirit at work in you to daily, consciously come to him. Lord, would you fill me again? Would you help me to live for you today? We, we work out our salvation by constantly coming back to celebrate his goodness and to recognize our dependence on him. To, to recognize and realize our need of him. We work out our salvation and he works in us to stir in us obedience, to equip us and enable us to live for him. Paul continues on. More instructions of what this looks like. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. I just want to acknowledge we're moving fast through a lot of verses where we could spend a long time unpacking lots. I'm, I'm kind of skimming over the surface of what Paul has to say in these verses. I acknowledge that, um, and there's lots that we could get into. But in these, this last section of what we're looking at today, Paul encourages them to hold fast to the word of life and that as we hold fast to the word of life as we hold fast to the truth about Christ Jesus as we hold fast to scripture and live in obedience to it he says you will shine among them like stars in the sky as lights in the world if we live as citizens of heaven, not trying to keep our heads down and acquiesce to, to the world's requests, but we live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus, in obedience to him, live as citizens of heaven. If we allow God's word to shape our lives, our attitudes and our actions, if we live to know Jesus and make him known, to grow more like him. If we hold fast to the teaching of scripture and not tweaking and modifying or softening it to suit society's sensibilities, then we will shine like stars, Paul says. We'll shine in this world. In other words, we'll stand out against the black backdrop of society will be noticeably different and in a good way. And Paul's encouragement to the Philippian church is this. He says, So that in the day of Christ, as in when Jesus returns to call his bride to himself, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. 
Paul's conclusion to this section is that if the Philippian church had lost their way, if they'd abandoned sound doctrine, or if they just decided to keep their heads down, um, if they had begun to believe another gospel than the salvation by grace alone through repentance and faith in Christ alone, if they had lived primarily as citizens of Rome instead of citizens of heaven, then Paul's perspective would be that he'd failed. That he would have been running in vain. That all he'd invested in them as a church community would have been wasted. But that if they held fast to the word of life, if they continued to live lives worthy of the gospel, if their lives evidenced to those around them that they had truly received new life in Christ, that the gospel was true and it changed everything for them, then his life had been a success. He would not have run in vain. Paul's view of success wasn't by the world's measures. Remember, Paul's writing from prison, right? At this point, he's, he has nothing, humanly speaking. Paul's measure of success wasn't about health, which was beginning to fail by this point, or wealth, because he didn't have it, or comfort, because he was in prison. And as we saw in Acts 16, he'd even been tortured in prison, or even freedom. No, Paul's drive, and Paul's measure of success, his measure of whether his life had been spent productively was... Am I alive in Christ and growing more like him? And am I living as an ambassador for the gospel and have other people, in this case the Philippian church, through my words and actions come to a place of knowing Jesus and living for him? That was Paul's measure of success. He's like, am I alive in Christ and living for his glory? If so, then I would consider my life successful. Am I living as an ambassador for the gospel? Then I'm doing what I'm called to. My life's successful. Have people encountered the good news of Jesus as a result of my witness? And are they going on in their faith because of my encouragement? If so, then I'm successful. That was Paul's perspective. How about you? How are you measuring success in your life? Are you measuring success by how much you have in the bank, how comfortable your house is, what car you drive, the company you keep? How are you measuring success? Are you so consumed with Jesus, so in awe of his goodness, his kindness and mercy and grace, that like Paul, you're living for his glory and longing for others to do the same? Or are you still a bit in love with the world and its empty promises? Which citizenship is impacting your decisions the most? Is it conforming to the pattern of this world? 
or being transformed, whether in here of your mind, conforming to the pattern of heaven, as a citizen of heaven. I want to pray for us in response to this. And then we're going to come to take communion together in just a moment.